Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up, it was a year ago this month, the Gwinnett County School Board announced its next superintendent would be Dr. Calvin J. Watts. I'll speak with Superintendent Watts about his first year in leading one of the largest public school districts in the country and the upcoming fall academic year. Also, after last week's announcement from DeKalb County District Attorney Sherry Boston, there will be no charges against officers in the shooting death of Matthew Zadok Williams. Well, his family members and their attorney will be joining the program. Now, that's later. But we'll begin with news regarding that special grand jury in Fulton County issuing new subpoenas as it investigates former President Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election and whether or not he actually interfered. The subpoenas include former campaign lawyer Rudy Giuliani and Republican U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham. Now, at the time of this broadcast, Senator Graham, through his attorneys, referred to the investigations as, quote, a fishing expedition, close quote. According to the AJC, Graham's attorneys cite, quote, as chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Graham was well within his rights to discuss with state officials the processes and procedures around administering elections. Should it stand, the subpoenas issued Tuesday would erode the constitutional balance of power and the ability of a member of Congress to do their job, close quote. Lots to get to. Let's welcome somebody you in who's smarter than me. He's a WAB legal, RWAB legal analyst, Paige Pate. Paige, welcome. Thank you, Rose. And I'm not sure that I'm smarter <laughs> than you. In fact, I think I'm not, clearly. Uh, let's begin here. I want to back up a little bit for listeners. There could be some that have no idea what we're talking about, but let's just, let's just go back a little bit in history. Now, way back when in 2020, we know that then-President Donald Trump had called Secretary of State Fred Rustberg's office. They had a Long conversation. Here's part of that clip that seems to be playing over and over again. Senator, can you clarify this conversation you had with the secretary? Not that one. There was another one. Uh, We'll get that fixed in just a moment. But let's back up. So at the core of this special grand jury, what are the what will Fannie Willis and her department look to do? Well, Rose, Fannie is trying to determine if there were serious crimes committed, not just in that phone call that we'll probably hear about later and have heard many, many times, both uh, locally and in connection with the January 6th committee hearings in Washington, but whether there was really a coordinated effort to overturn the legitimate election um, outcome here in Georgia. And part of that is trying to get to that inner circle around former President Trump, what they were telling him, what he was telling them, and ultimately what they did to try to overturn the election. Now, the recent subpoenas go to the heart of that. Okay. Now, I think we have the clip that I want folks to hear that this has be, been played over and over again. There's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. 
Now, that's been played so many times. But how important is this phone call, you think, Paige, and and, and as it relates also to whatever testimony they're going to get in all of this? Well, the phone call is important because that shows an overt act. That's actually Trump trying to do something to influence the election results in Georgia. What all the investigation is about is trying to determine what was his intent in doing it, who else was involved, and was there a big scheme that was planned that also included trying to certify a sham list of electors to support him as being reelected as president. So there's a lot of context that goes into what actually occurred on that phone call, and that's primarily the subject of this investigation. And now this inner team, this legal inner legal team for them, for President Donald Trump, now they're being subpoenaed. Quick question, someone asked, do you have to show up if a special grand jury issues a subpoena? Well, yes, you do, but what's happening here is a bit different <clears throat> because unlike a federal grand jury, A grand jury sitting in Georgia only has jurisdiction to issue subpoenas within the state of Georgia. So let's take Senator Graham, for instance, because he is someone that they're trying to subpoena and his lawyers have already said we're going to ignore it. Well, what happens? It's a two-step process. Judge McBurney here in Fulton County has approved the issuance of these subpoenas, but that subpoena still has to be served in South Carolina for Senator Graham or D.C., Hmm. And so what's going to happen is the senator will have an opportunity to challenge that subpoena in a court in his home state. So you may have a South Carolina judge that finds, you know what, I don't think this subpoena is being issued for a valid purpose. I think it's political. So I'm not going to require Senator Graham to go down to Georgia and testify. So there's two steps here where it's normally one step. You serve the subpoena, you ignore it. There's a contempt hearing Mm -hmm. here. You got to have it verified twice by two separate judges before you can get to the question of contempt. Now, back in November of 2020, Senator Graham was asked by reporters about the phone conversation he had. This was a different conversation than one we just played that he had with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Here's this clip from NBC News. Senator, can you clarify this conversation you had with the Secretary of State in Georgia? Did you or did you not ask him to throw out votes? No, that's ridiculous. I talked to him about how you verify signatures. Right now, a single person verifies signatures, and I suggested as you go forward, can you change it to make sure that a bipartisan team verifies signatures, and if there's a dispute, come up with an appeal process. So he called his staff calls Saturday trying to hook me up with a media outlet so I could say something nice about him. I, I thought it was a nice conversation. Well, why is a senator from South Carolina calling the secretary of state in Georgia anyway? Uh, because uh, the future of the country hangs in the balance. Does it, though? I mean, it seems yeah, like it's it, pretty it really, well. It really does. Hangs in the balance, Paige. Um, senator Graham said, look, this is well within my right. I'm concerned because it does point to, as he put it, the the nation. You know, perhaps the democratic process, what have you. How will he, will his legal team in trying to fight this say, look, this is what we're going to stand by. If you were his legal team, would you still say, look, Senator, this is what you have to, if this is what you believe, this is what you have to stick to because you weren't doing anything technically or illegally. Well, Rose, he really has two arguments. The first argument is going back to the fact this is an out-of-state subpoena. It's not being issued for a legitimate purpose. 
fishing expedition is a term you would use to suggest that it's all political. It's not related to a serious ongoing criminal investigation where this witness has material evidence to present to the grand jury. That's kind of a technical defense to it. The other defense I expect them to raise if they have to get to this stage is that as a senator, he has certain protections for anything he does in connection with his job that are guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. You can't subpoena him to a county grand jury in, in Atlanta to talk about discussions he may have had with the president, discussions he may have had with other senators about a legislative responsibility. So that issue is going to deter be determined by whether or not you find that he's acting outside of his job as a U.S. senator, and he's basically just doing the grunt work for Trump at the time. And now, that's going to be the argument Fulton County has. Now, that is Senator Graham. Now, as it relates to Rudy Giuliani, Ru Rudy Giuliani here, who has been all up in this since day one, and Trump's yeah. attorney here, in a sense. It's a little bit different, and he has a different argument. I guess he could have a different argument as to whether or not he'll even show up. Or should yeah, be. What, Go ahead. That's right. He's, he's got the same procedural argument first. This is just a fishing expedition. It's not a valid subpoena. There's no need for my testimony. But then his second argument is a bit, a bit different. Obviously, he's not a senator. He's not a congressman. Mm -hmm. But he's going to say, I'm the lawyer for the president. Any conversations or discussions I had with him or anyone else on our legal team are privileged. And you can't ask me about that. Of course, Fulton County's response is going to be, wait a minute, when you sat down in front of our state Senate committee to talk about these crazy election frauds that you had you know, made up or falsified, you stepped outside of your role as a lawyer and now you're acting as a private citizen. So that's another battle that a judge is going to have to resolve. When you say a judge, this will be a, uh, a Fulton County judge or a federal a district attorney a federal judge here who who which judge well it, <laughs> many <laughs> I got many questions Paige. <laughs> right well it, here's how it's supposed to work again mcburney signed off on saying go ahead and issue the subpoena out of state and see if a state court judge in that state will serve it and so the first challenge is going to be to a judge in a different state if they can't get it knocked out then if before they show up here in georgia i expect that they will then file that kind of second defense we talked about in front of Judge McBurney and see if he accepts it. Now, we've already had state legislators in Georgia mm -hmm. challenge their subpoenas kind of on that second argument, right, that they shouldn't have to be uh, required to testify about discussions they had in connection with their work as a state legislator. They never had that first defense because their subpoena was served within Georgia. Judge McBurney, then he has a lot to weigh here. What is he actually looking at then? Is he looking well, at going, the constitutional challenge here? Is this is what the, is based on? That's right. It, it's it, so far the state legislators have based their challenge on the state constitution that provides immunity to a legislator who's discussing legislative business. And so Judge McBurney has to weigh that protection that's given to a legislator with the need for the criminal grand jury to get the evidence it needs to determine if a crime's been committed. So what I anticipate Judge McBurney is going to do is issue an order at some point this week saying some questions are okay, some questions are off limits, but I'm going to allow them to testify. I'm not going to throw out these subpoenas. And if that does indeed happen, does that obviously sends a signal to Giuliani and Lindsey Graham here? I think it does. Again, assuming that their local state court judges will enforce the subpoena or at least require it to be served in the first instance.
could they also then appeal and try to take it to a different or a higher court? They certainly could. You know, there's a process for that. Once you appear and make the argument here in Georgia, um, you can always appeal the judge's ruling. You would have to request an immediate review of that, obviously, if you want to stop before you go and testify in front of the grand jury. It's not uncommon sometimes for a judge to actually issue a ruling from the bench right there on the day after the uh, all the, test, the the hearing concludes. But obviously, Judge McBurney taking some time here. Does it length of time give any one one side a greater advantage at all here? No, I don't think so. I mean, Judge McBurney mentioned that even though he's just dealing with two legislators right now, he expects the rules that he's going to lay out for these guys to apply to anyone else who receives a similar subpoena. So he's being methodical. That's what Judge McBurney does. Mm -hmm. So I I don't see him, you know, tipping his hand for one side or the other. We know he's going to enforce the subpoena, so they're going to have to testify. The only question is, what are they going to be able to talk about? And Paige, as we wrap up, as it relates to this special grand jury, anything else unique about this being a special grand jury that you think listeners should understand as it relates to, the, I guess, your typical everyday grand jury? This case is the only thing on their plate. They can focus all of their time and attention on determining whether there was a crime committed here and who committed it. So the fact that they're dedicated to this one case and they can continue to meet and discuss it for up to a year makes it very different from a standard grand jury in the state. So this could be going on for a while. It could. I think the district attorney said, you know, she'd love to have it complete in a couple of months. But, you know, if every witness is going to challenge the subpoena, that's going to take longer. So we shall wait and see. WABE legal analyst Paige Pate, thank you so much for dissecting all of this. And you you are pretty smart, Paige. (laughs) Thank you, Rose. (laughs) Take care, Paige. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Yes, it's the usual summer break for students right now, but what's still unusual is that we're in this pandemic. Now, two years ago, all the nation's schools had to pivot and figure out how to continue educating students. Meanwhile, from parents to teachers to school board members, politicians, and everyone in between, including late night talk TV people and public radio hosts, everyone seemed to be at odds and asking questions about whether to mask not masks, to vaccines, mandates, the debate continues. Well, in Gwinnett County, which is the Georgia's largest school district and in the top 12 nationwide in terms of population and quite diverse, they had the same issues. And they also introduced a new superintendent who came aboard. What a way to be your first superintendent job in a pandemic. How was his first year? Let's ask Gwinnett County Superintendent Dr. Calvin J. Watts. Superintendent Watts, welcome to the program. 
Thank you, Rose. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you for having me. You get the same question that every other superintendent got. There was no playbook on how to deal with a pandemic. You came into this year one. If you had to assess uh, yourself, you know how you do the self-evaluations? Absolutely. On a scale of one to ten, that's probably not very fair. But what have you, uh, what's been, I guess, overall just this first year in terms of the school district still trying to maneuver through educating students, and we're still in this pandemic? No, thank you, Rose. And I will say, in in, in all fairness, uh, my wife would probably say uh, I'd get, I should give myself an eight and a half. That that, <laughs> and, and that's my story. I'm sticking to it. I got you. Uh, first and foremost, you mentioned this is uh, my first superintendency in Georgia. This is actually my second superintendency, right. and and I was able to actually uh, begin my my tenure as superintendent in my home state, birth state of Washington. Uh, so that is actually where I began my tenure leading in the midst of a global pandemic. So one could say that I had a bit of practice before <laughs> yeah. I relocated to, to Georgia, uh, but, but there's, there's no denying, no matter where we served, uh, any superintendent, any teacher, any uh, administrator at the local school level, any student, any family member or community member understands exactly what it was like to go through uh, this this pandemic during the last two and a half years. It's not uncommon, obviously, for a superintendent in a leadership role. Obviously, you have a strategic plan. You're working with the board. You're working with the district. But did you were you able to try to implement any of those strategies? Because you again, it's the pandemic, and it's it's dealing like what other school districts have to deal with. You know, retention with educators students. I mean, yes. all the optics surrounding just related to COVID-19 and then the typical strategies that a superintendent wants to try to implement. I mean, you had all that working. How did you decide what to prioritize here and what were those priorities? Thank you for that that question. I think first and foremost, what what the pandemic allowed us to to exemplify as leaders is to never question, can we do this? Is this possible? Uh, this seems really, really hard. And we know teaching and learning is one of the hardest things to do in, in life. And as, as a teacher, I always consider myself a teacher, as superintendent, uh, relocating 3,000 miles away from where I grew up uh, uh, personally, uh, I would say one of the greatest challenges was really recognizing the fact that there were, there were many similarities, uh, the challenges that we faced. How do we manage uh, mask mandate? How do we manage uh, some of our, our challenges where, where families uh, were politicized, the notion of safety mm-hmm. and, and the idea that we really want each and every child to be safe, every staff member who walks into our, our facilities. But we had to manage through that. By managing change, uh, it allowed us to answer several questions. Uh, what's most important? It's teaching and learning. But it's also even more important for our students and our staff members to be safe while doing it. And we had mitigation strategies like other 13,000 school districts that we operated within, um, we were able to manage fairly successfully in this this year one. But there were also some other external situations that you had to deal with. For example, you know, as well, you've been an educator, you know that often school districts have to provide these what we call wraparound services. I can't tell you, Superintendent Watts, many conversations we've had about School districts, APS, Cobb, all trying to decab, all trying to come up with ways to make sure one the kids had the devices they needed. Yes. You're also talking about kids who households have a connection issue. There's that gap, and just in, in general too, households where you might have had a parent, 
intergenerational population living there, everything involved, and even with with providing lunches and meals, you have all that work. And in Gwinnett County is no is is not you know unique to this as well. So you have to deal with all of that, and you have a large non you have a large black and African American, you have a large non-white population, you have a fairly large population of students who are at or below the poverty line. You got a lot there. There is a lot and, and a lot to unpack. And and that's exactly what, what we did. We led, first of all, with with empathy in mind. And I think that's part of the conversation I'd like to, to talk about even further. Uh, we knew we had to have a plan in place. Uh, I began first and foremost by just reminding myself, A, that, that I too can go home again. Uh, I grew up professionally in Gwinnett County Public Schools served for 13 years here previously, but not, not as a superintendent, obviously. When I arrived, uh, I made the, the concerted effort with our team to create a strategic planning process mm-hmm. that would allow us to first lead with empathy, uh, that, that would then follow up with uh, ensuring that equitable allocation of resources would support, then effectiveness and ultimately excellence, that notable standard to which we all should aspire, whether it's academically, socially, emotionally, or operationally. And have you been able to assess, were you all able to achieve that to some that to question. some satisfaction? I will say that we have not yet uh, had enough time, I would say, uh, to determine to what degree and how well we were able to achieve those goals. However, what we do have, Rose, is a plan that includes uh, key performance indicators, a, mm-hmm. a plan that does have metrics to which we will and against which we will, will measure our progress going forward. The reality is, uh, I technically am still in year one. Yeah, it and won't be a. F- look, you got you got about a couple of weeks, don't you? A couple of weeks, that's yeah. right. And after year one, we'll begin year two. The goal now is to make sure that the implementation, the strategies that we are putting in place, uh, that they are now uh, able to stick, and that we will be able to monitor and measure our performance against those results that show up. Well, Superintendent Watts, can you give me at least two or three of those metrics you will use? Absolutely. Uh, one example, the first E is, is empathy. Uh, it's, it's doing our very best to understand what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. And so how will we measure that? Someone yeah. uh, you know, often says, well, that, that's just a squishy indicator, Dr. Watts. How do, you, how do you measure that? Well, the reality is we have taken a very concerted effort to engage, to call people in. We've called our students in with the first of a kind superintendent student advisory council, where 50 two middle school students and 63 high school students have met from the middle of the year to the end of our year, uh, meeting with me and and senior level leaders on Saturday mornings Mm -hmm. for an hour and a half each. Why? To talk about what is most important, their performance. How do we address their needs? Our strategic planning process, they provided feedback and gave us very clear, cogent information that shared, hey, this this is information coming from our most important customers, Mm -hmm. our students. And they bought in and they owned the process. Uh, so those are, are, are some metrics that we are, are going to be using. One is a, a student uh, survey and survey data that asks the question, as a student, uh, does little Calvin have someone, at least one adult with whom he can rely upon or believes in him as a, as a student? Mm-hmm. And ideally, I, we want all of our students to be able to answer not only yes, but yes, indeed. And, and that metric will be one as an example that will show we are leading with empathy. We want our students to know that they're cared for, that they're seen, they're heard, they're valued, and they're accepted, and that they belong in each and every one of our schools. 
The voice you hear is Gwinnett County Public School Superintendent Dr. Calvin J. Watts, and he's not quite at a year yet, but he's got a few weeks away. That's how I'm in discussion with right now. Superintendent Watts, you mentioned the students. I want to shift and talk about the educators for a moment. Yes. Earlier this year, an educator, Lee Allen, also the Gwinnett County Schools Teacher of the Year, addressed the school board, and he said he was leaving the district. And I want to play a clip. We'll take a listen to a summary of Mr. Allen's frustrations as he stated them to the board. The first issue at hand is student apathy and disrespect for school rules and norms. Returning from concurrent learning, we have an alarming number of students that simply do not care about learning and refuse to even try. We are also experiencing incredible disrespect and a refusal to follow basic school rules. Next, cell phone use. Teachers cannot possibly compete with the billions of dollars tech companies pour into addicting people to their devices. Phones allow constant communication, often being the spark that fuels fights, drug use, and other inappropriate meetups throughout the day. We need a comprehensive district plan with support behind it in order to combat this epidemic and protect the learning environment. Lastly, there is a huge disconnect between administrators and teachers. The classroom in 2022 is drastically different from just three years ago. Most administrators have not been in a classroom full time in years or even decades. Many teachers currently do not feel understood, valued, or trusted as professionals from administrators and the decisions that they make. Many decisions seem to be short-term band-aids placed on gaping wounds. Now, there's a lot to unpack there. But first, did you you were aware of, of Mr. Allen and when he addressed the school board? Yeah, I was. I was at that there. board meeting yeah. uh, on the day. That's correct. As he ended with that clip, short-term band-aids on gaping wounds. Did you, have you had a chance to speak with him? I have spoken with him uh, previously, and not after that that uh, recent uh, encounter in, in the board meeting, but I've had conversations with him, yes. Did he talk about these frustrations with you? Uh, he did mention uh, certainly you know, some frustrations that, that he had, uh, and I will say, first and foremost, I respect each and every one of our teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, I always consider myself a teacher, and, and the, the, the reality is uh, what, what Mr. Allen ha has uh, shared and, and shared in that clip is is very similar to what others uh, like Mr. Allen uh, were feeling, not mm -hmm. just in Gwinnett County Public Schools, but across the country. This is it's it's a hard time mm -hmm. in general to to be a teacher uh, of students in in a an average public school uh, setting. The reality is our students have been away from each other, mm -hmm. have been away from their colleagues and friends for for two and a half years in many cases. And what we know to be true, there is research that shows that, that we are social creatures and that when we are away from one another, we do lose some sense of normalcy, some sense of collegiality. Mm -hmm. And how do we get along with others? Uh, that, that has manifested itself in many ways. We, we do see uh, evidence of that in some of our schools. I'll give you a firm example of what uh, Mr. Allen mentioned, one in a data set that we monitor. Every behavior, I believe, communicates a need. If you were to ask me, Dr. Watts, what are the top three most frequently issued disciplinary offenses in the middle school level, I would tell you, first and foremost, one is uh, absent without leave. That means student is not uh, showing up to, to class on, on time and not uh, giving a reason for, for, for being absent. Mm -hmm. Second is tardy, uh, being in the hallway, uh, uh, being somewhere else other than, than being on time in the classroom. And the third is failure to follow instructions. Each one of those behaviors shows that, that a student uh, has a desire to be somewhere else other than in the classroom. And that's important for us to know. That, that's, how, that's, that's an indicator. So then how do you begin to address that? Yes. 
because you you want to educate all the kids. Absolutely. Um, and you know, and I know, because I experienced it, there sometimes educators have to make that decision if it's one or two quote yes. disruptors, remove them. Now, I, I, now I'm not saying I was removed. I'm just saying I don't want people. Oh, that rose guy was I'm kicked not out saying of that. You were, I, I, I know you were. So, um, and then then that those students who are cited as disruptors, then they're not being educated. So it is tough. No one argues yes. that. How Absolutely. do you be? Where do you begin to address that? Yes. And do you need then the community and and counselors and parents? You have to bring them all in this too and say, hey, we can't do it alone. We need for every student to want to be here, to want to learn. If there are some other circumstances that's preventing a, a student from learning, we need to address that. There's a lot here. So yes. where do you begin? Yes, you, you begin with the, what you just shared with me and the, and the purpose for this conversation today. We, we begin with asking questions. And those questions are, first of all, what is it that, that it's going to take for, for you to, to feel as though you belong? Uh, to ask, and I... Askly, uh, simply put, ask several of our students who were on our, our student advisory. And these were, were students, some of whom who, who fit some of the categories that I've just described, some of whom would be uh, considered model students and somewhere in between. These were, were average students. And I will tell you, they shared with me, Dr. Watts, our, we want to suggest changes. We want to suggest ways in which we can feel like we belong, uh, whether it, it, it was an issue of having different meals uh, uh, served at lunch, mm -hmm. uh, making sure that they had course offerings that reflected uh, their, their desires and, and needs as a learner. Uh, there were multiple aspects that we learned from our students uh, that we also learned from our teachers. And we should note too, Superintendent Watts, because you came yes. into the district where there were concerns and then there was data that indicated that black students in the district and, and Hispanic students were disproportionately disciplined, suspended within the district. They faced a higher rate of that as opposed to white students do. What have you all done to address this? And that, that is an important uh, point that you, you bring up, Rose, and I think this is really the, the conversation that we're having with each and every. And that's the notion of, of not, not referring to all students now because little Calvin can get lost in all. Mm -hmm. When we focus on each and every, that means that, that our, our educators, our counselors, our administrators, me as a superintendent, our district level leaders are now responsible uh, for creating environments where not just our students, but our staff, our families feel welcomed uh, to our school facilities, feel valued, they feel appreciated, they feel seen and heard. Uh, and, and part of that is professional development, mm -hmm. uh, adding uh, counselors and a social emotional learning arm to our support systems within Gwinnett County Public Schools that, that really allow uh, our adults to understand that, that this is hard work, not just hard work, but it's hard work. That when we love this work, it becomes easier. But, they need to, but the educators need to support and the students need to support. Absolutely. And then there's training involved. Absolutely. That, and that's a part of that professional development that I, that I mentioned. That is a, also, we can't do this work alone. We can't do this work without education and professional development. We are a learning organization, and that is part of our goal. We need to make sure that we're learning how to, to teach, even, please, but No, I'm just curious, so are you saying there will be a different or modified assessment? And I don't know what the assessment that you all use in terms of when it comes to discipline, if it's going to lead to suspension or expulsion. Is there, has that 
that's changing? Is there going to be more of a process, a longer process involved? Now, obviously, there may be some incidents where, obviously, if it's of a criminal nature, perhaps, but there's always due process involved in that as well. So are you saying that this is changing? You're, 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 the culture is changing and the process is changing in terms of how to make sure students have a fair and what one would may say equitable process is if it's going to lead to disciplinary action that could result in suspensions or someone being expelled? So the, the simple answer to that is yes, we are uh, working towards changing. And, and the, the inconvenient truth is that, Rose, we cannot improve unless and until we change. Mm -hmm. And so the, the focus for us now is to take a look at discipline, not necessarily as uh, an act that an adult uh, imparts onto another uh, a young person. Mm -hmm. But in fact, uh, our goal is to make sure that we as students and as staff are disciplined, that, that we are we are actually following our own code of conduct and ultimately we're doing some things differently not just punishing for punishing punishing sake sometimes individuals need to be excluded from a, an environment mm -hmm. to to cool down to find their 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 centered self but there are also times when when a student needs to also restore the relationship that has been damaged whether it's with another student or with an adult mm -hmm. and that's our restorative practices uh, strategy and support system through strong professional development helping our students to understand that, yes, you may be removed from a situation. We really want you to come back into this circle, this, this peacemaking circle, and talk about what bothered you. What, what could you have done differently? And, and ask the question, how can I restore the relationship that might be damaged between myself and a teacher, like Mr. Mr. Allen met you, mm -hmm. or a counselor, or, or a parent, or, or a caregiver, or a fellow student. These, these are the, the new... I would say, and, and improve strategies uh, that may may serve us uh, better, certainly allowing us to build community because we're in, in different times now we're, and we're in very challenging times and our community is what we need now more than ever. What is the then the number one non-pandemic related new strategy implementation coming in in this school year and when, when the kids come back? So I think when the when the kids come back and then when the adults come back, mm -hmm. uh, I will say one thing that that will remain is that we're going to continue with our mitigation strategies. We're going to make sure that we're uh, you know, top down, inside out. Our buildings will be well maintained, uh, disinfected and supported. Uh, we also want want to make sure that that we're taking care of the inside of our students and staff members. So that means the hard work. That means the social emotional work. So that is is new and, 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 and not necessarily new, but newly important. Mm -hmm. And so that means how do we uh, you know, have a, a, a beginning of our school year that that gives students, staff and families this warm feeling of a welcome back and a welcome back to a place where you belong, not where you are a stranger, not where you're not wanted. No, a place where you belong, where you are seen, valued and heard and that where your goal is to be a better, brighter student. Uh, achieving at higher levels at each grade level and upon graduation so that you can be not just prepared, but ready for the career connection, the career connected learning, and the career of, of your choice. And finally, I'm curious as a former a educator who's been in the classroom, you're now in a leadership position, yes. you are a man of color, all those optics, you think about that, you draw from all those experiences in this leadership role now here in Georgia, in Gwinnett County? 
every day, Rose. I, I think about, uh, first of all, the fact that, that I grew up in, in, the Was in Washington State. My parents, I have Southern roots. My dad was born in East Palacca, Florida. My mom was born in Thomasville, Georgia. They did the second migration, met, married. Three years later, I was welcomed to the world. That's how I, I, uh, you know, I was born in Washington State. But I went from one Washington to the other. I'm a Howard University grad. And what I tell people is that when H people ask, well, you know, <laughs> and so, so, so when they ask me, uh, Dr. Watts, when did you first see a teacher who reflected your dimension of, of difference? Mm -hmm. And and I share this. This is part of my leadership story. I said the first time. Now I had my dad, I had uncles who were incredible role models, but the first teacher, the educator, official educator in a classroom experience that I had, who looked like me as an African American male, was was freshman year in college. That was the first time. Wow. Now, now the reality is what I tell people, and we have this conversation in, in Gwinnett County Public Schools uh, today, the notion of the role model effect. It is real. It is real in that. Uh, no, it doesn't mean that because I don't look like you that, that you cannot see uh, me as a, a positive role model. But what it does mean is that when I see images of me, uh, the reflections of my own uh, dimensions of diversity, that when I see those images in positions of power or authority, that uh, I too can see myself in those same roles and responsibilities. As the first African-American superintendent in Gwinnett County Public Schools, I take that very seriously and, and have had a, a story to tell from a young lady who served as a leader in one of our high schools that I visited. And after I had a conversation with her and, and part of my look, listen, learn tour where I visited uh, more than 90 of our schools. I still have about 50 to go, but we're going to continue that that uh, that pace. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was told that uh, that Dr. Watts, the student who shared you shared with, when you left uh, the assembly, and that she was she was glad you joined us. She started crying, and I said, "What what what happened?" I said, "Why did she start crying?" She said, "No, there were there were happy tears, but there were also tears of of joy in that." She said, "I never thought that I would see a superintendent." who looked like me. And this was a, a sophomore, I believe, or a, a junior uh, at one of our high schools. And so I understand the importance of I take that very seriously and, and certainly know that, that I don't uh, lead in the way just for African-American students. I mm -hmm. lead for each and every one of our students so that they can see images of themselves uh, in, in how I lead and how I, I carry myself. We'll check back in with you all again. Gwinnett County Superintendent Dr. Calvin J. Watts. Always nice to talk to a Howard Bison. Hate you. You know. I didn't go there. I just like saying it. Well, you know, you, you can be a Bison. <laughs> Superintendent Watts, okay. thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for answering the questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You take care. Stay in touch. All right. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation concluded their investigation of the shooting death of Matthew Zadok Williams in July of last year. Now, you recall Williams was shot and killed inside his home in April of 2021 by the Cap police officers after the authorities said he lunged at officers with a knife. Now, Williams' family has always said that the 35-year-old was having a mental episode. Well, the investigation was then in the office of District Attorney Sherry Boston, and her conclusion would determine whether or not to criminally charge the officers, including Sergeant Devon Perry. Here's part of my conversation with DA Boston from last week. 
Yeah, and it's not just Georgia law. It's based in a U.S. Supreme Court case that dictates that when an officer is trying to arrest somebody for a forcible felony um, or to prevent um, escape, that the officer is justified and and legally authorized to use um, deadly, what we call deadly force, right, which would be a firearm because it can cause death. I'm joined now by family members of Matthew Williams. Again, his mother, Chris Ann Lewis, sister, Hannah Williams, Zephora Williams, and their attorney, Wally Davis. Thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I want to go back because I know you all met with DA Boston before she was going to make that announcement in the press conference. Um, And Hannah, I'll start with you. I want to give you an opportunity in terms of your takeaway from that conversation. I know you all are disappointed. DA Boston said that she laid out everything. Yes. Thank you, Rose, for having us back on your show. We are, as a family, very deeply disappointed and devastated by the DA's decision not to charge the officers that are responsible for my brother's death. Um, You know, it's hard to know where to start as far as what we gleaned from that conversation with the DA when she made that decision and gave her presentation. But there are several things that we found that were missing from the analysis or just plainly incorrect. Um, You know, she didn't take into consideration the mental health policy, the SWAT policy for barricaded individuals, statements that Zadok made on the porch, what officers knew about his mental health at the time. She misstated some of the facts, and um, our attorney would talk about her application of the law. She also did not, in our opinion, give a good analysis about their failure to render aid Mm -hmm. after the shooting. Um, She did not attempt to even interview these officers who were responsible for his death. And we also felt like she used a cab policy, police policy as a shield, but refused to use it as a sword. Okay. Now, before I get to your attorney, David, because I know there are some questions that you are going to answer, mm-hmm. I want to give either Miss Lewis you an opportunity as a four or you an opportunity to also just weigh in on the decision from DA Boston. It was very um, disappointing. You know, I know the odds of these type of cases, you know, it's less than 2% of officers are usually prosecuted in these murder cases. But, you know, as a family, we've still went in with that mustard state of faith, given his mental illness, given, you know, everything that was cited on the body cam footage that, you know, justice was going to be served. So it's very disappointing that that didn't happen, you know, for her not to even take in consideration that my brother was having a mental health crisis. It's just baffling to me. You know, mentally ill people, they deserve compassion, they deserve patience, and they deserve treatment, not bullets. And unfortunately, my brother got the bullets that day. Miss Lewis? Well, I'm severely disappointed because on April 12th, 2021, nobody had to die that day. Nobody. And the decision that she made, I was shocked. I was, I was just, I just still can't believe it. And I'm left just with the opinion that all these type of cases, all these police killings, is pretty much unfair to these DAs, considering their close relationship with the police department, that they have to make these decisions. And I feel like all police killings should be immediately reported to a special prosecutor who is totally neutral and let them 
have the power to charge or not charge. I asked DA Boston about the weight of the evidence. She talked about not only the body camera footage, statutes, and she mentioned federal and mm-hmm. state here. I asked about interviewing the officers, which she said she did not, mm-hmm. and that that was standard. No. Okay. <laughs> attorney Davis, you are attorney for the family. What You've heard the interview? I did. What then are you in, opposing that what she said was not right? or, or So the any investigator has great latitude on who they interview. Uh, I have... Obviously, across the state, we had handled these kinds of uh, unfortunate uh, civil rights violation cases. And so we have had a number of district attorneys who do elect to uh, at least attempt to interview the officer. The reason that that's significant in this case is that if you listen to the body cam footage, this officer, Devon Perry, acknowledges that Dotto never lunges at him. And so there's a contradiction. And I think during her interview with you, she indicated that there was no contradiction in statements. But there was because he was being pushed to try to say he lunged at you. Right. And he's like, no, you know, so it it, that did not happen. And that, I think, is really a major issue. The other piece is that she uses a U.S. Supreme Court case. And I think it's misused um, their their team. um, We we talk about Garner. Um, all the time. That's mm-hmm. the that's the Supreme Court case. That case involved a unarmed man attempting to escape after committing a burglary. And what the Supreme Court said was that it was unconstitutional to shoot an unarmed fleeing person. That that fact pattern doesn't even fit here. One, Zadok was barricaded in. He was completely surrounded so escape was not an issue here the the house was surrounded on all sides by law enforcement so there was no need to even try to use that case to justify what happened Zephora also mentioned that the policies of SWAT and then the policies around mental health now I asked a DA Boston about Matthew's mental state was there any use in terms of Knowing his his history, she said that it was not because he was not the one on quote trial here. She didn't want to try him. Mm-hmm. Can you understand? I'm asking, does that? Well, the, the point that's missing from the analysis was that when they realized, which is very early on, he's having a mental health crisis, their approach should have shifted. At that time, he's inside of his home. What should the approach have been? Call SWAT. Call SWAT, call a negotiator, do what we see being done in other parts of the county and other parts of the state where they'll bring bring in SWAT and just hold the perimeter. There's no reason that if you know he's having a mental health crisis, why would you escalate by kicking his door in and then and then saying, now that I've kicked the door in, I got to shoot you because now you're a threat to me. And that just wasn't the... Um, it, it wasn't necessary for them to even engage in that way. So that's a the violation around mental health. Then when you look at how he was dealt with even after they get to the scene and they're alleging that this use of force is legitimate. And it's not when you he never the, the question you asked her was the key question that she did, could not answer. He never lunged. There's nothing on that video. 
that he tries to come out at these officers ever. All he was doing was closing the door. But he, he had he had he had it. He had a knife in his hand you're, you're, as he closed the door. We acknowledge that he had a knife in his hand, but it was never him coming out. You never see him cross that threshold at all. As we wrapped up our conversation, I asked DA Boston about the challenges in in coming up with charging charging termination. Um, here's a little bit of what she said. At the end of the day, my team makes a recommendation and they give me evidence and I ask all the questions. But I have to be settled in my mind on those answers. And sometimes it's not at the end of a 30 minute presentation. Mm-hmm. Really, sometimes I have to go home and really put myself in a headspace. I'll just say it, I have to pray on it. Like, what am I seeing? What am I feeling? And what I is what I'm feeling as a mother, right? Is that getting in the way of the law? Like I, I, I have to sit in it sometimes. Miss Lewis, she's a mother. You're a mother. What do you make of that statement? I can't say what's in Sherry Boston's heart or mine or in her prayer life. But what I can say is the facts. And the fact is on April 12th, 2021, when, they, when the police officers failed to activate mental health, when, they bar- when he was barricaded in and they didn't activate SWAT, okay? When they shot him and there was a 50 minute to 90 minute period before SWAT was there, they allowed him to bleed out, suffer and die, okay? What I can say is the facts. I can't say what's in her heart. Mm-hmm. The fact is I see negligence. The fact is I see no accountability. Mm-hmm. No accountability from CEO Thurman to Chief Ramos and no accountability from Sherry Boston. And because of that, woe to the Cab County citizens which suffer from mental health. Because a police officer can come to your door and all he has to do is say he thought you could possibly be a danger, even if you have no aggressive behavior, as my son was that day when he's trying to de-escalate them, and they can just shoot you, and there will be no criminal charges, no charges whatsoever. So what's in her heart and her prayers, that's personal. But what's in my heart and my prayers is we're going to continue with the support of the end up with, with uh, the SCLC, Nathan Knight, with the Black Futuristic, De- 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 Devin Barrington Ward, mm-hmm. and with Kiana Jones to get full accountability for the killing of my son, Mr. Matthew Zadok Williams. Hannah, what does that full accountability look like for your brother, for your family? Well, with our attorney, we're now weighing our options and what we should do about DA Boston's decision that we strongly disagree with and we don't think is consistent with the law. Um, obviously, there's civil accountability here, and our attorney is going to be filing a civil case. Um, in addition, we don't want this to ha- happen to anyone else. So as a family, we're still deciding what we want to do to bring some meaning to this. So another young man who's mentally ill will receive better treatment than my brother received that day. Zephora? Accountability means to me is that we continue to fight and we continue to get my brother the justice that he deserves. 
and we shed light on the mentally ill, not just in DeKalb County, but in this country as a whole. Mentally ill people are people just like everyone else. My brother was operating outside the realm of what was normal to him. He was frightened, he was afraid, and instead of being protected and served by those officers, the way they treated him was just to kill him. And that needs to change. Attorney Davis, will you all file a civil lawsuit against DeKalb County Police Department? Yes, we will. Um, we will obtain all of the information that DA Boston used to make what we believe was an absolute wrong decision, and we will try to make it right. That's that's what our commitment has been to this family from the beginning. Everything that we have seen, um, everything that we have heard only um, further fortifies our position that he should not have been handled in the manner that he was, and he should not be dead right now. Are you all filing on, on behalf that his civil rights were violated? Absolutely. His civil rights were violated. We also believe that he has a he had a right as a disabled person. And that, that should, again, echo out across the county and around the city and, and really throughout the nation that uh, disabled persons who have mental health crises and mental health issues have rights and those rights should be protected and it should not be a situation where we just oh we, we're going to ignore the fact that he has a mental health issue and just keep repeating the same thing drop it drop it that has no effect on someone having a mental health crisis da boston said that whether or not someone is and i'm, and I'm paraphrasing here mm -hmm. if they are suffering from a mental episode you still have to weigh, is there a threat? Officers still have to protect themselves, others in the community. Right. And can you understand that? You're an attorney, so you... Sure. And Rose, where was the threat when he's in locked inside of the home saying, I want to talk to you through the door? Who was he threatening? No one. And the policy specifically talks about remaining calm and not overreacting from law enforcement when you're dealing with someone with mental health. At that point, you bring in SWAT, you bring in this beautiful family and have them talk to them. Zato, come out, you know, and talk them down versus, oh, we're just going to go in. Why? Because his life just didn't matter. We do know, we hear and see on the body camera footage, the officer pleading with Zato to come out, mm -hmm. talking about, I'm a black man, you're a black man, I don't want to harm you. You feel, you feel that there was just, it was no exhaustion and everything wasn't exhausted in terms of trying to have this end a different way obviously absolutely because so you're saying that, that bring in you, you, SWAT. you bring SWAT in SWAT has and a negotiation and, okay. and you bring in a negotiation you don't do that on the porch when you have identified and acknowledged he's having a mental health crisis that's not being processed the same way and and to give it such validity the one of the other issues is that during the presentation, you didn't, there was no real focus on what Zadok was saying because he was really trying to de-escalate. He was t trying to talk through the door. He was rationalizing with them and with rather than forcibly entering and creating danger, they just continue with surrounding, bringing in family and talking through this. We see it happen all the time. Usually that, you know, is with non-African-Americans where those kinds of considerations are most often given. So you'll be filing a federal lawsuit? Correct. 
We will. When do you think that will happen? After we've had a chance to obtain all of the information. What are you still missing? Oh, we need to get everything, the GBI reports. So we've done an open records request. We've requested everything. The DA Boston um, has had an opportunity to review over the last year. Um, so we're going to review all of that, um, and then we'll prepare it. We'll put the county on notice to see if they want to discuss this prior to us filing a lawsuit. But we'll be ready. Nothing. There is no monetary value, obviously, we know, to bring back. Your son, your brother, folks say that all the time. We understand that. In negotiating all of this, Attorney Davis, how do you then come up with? Is because I'm I'm asking. This is more about. This is less about money. You also want to see some. You can't change. negotiate change. Can you can you negotiate changes in a civil lawsuit here in a settlement? In in a settlement, you can. There are instances where we've been able to discuss um, changes in in policy. But, but here's the thing, Rose, this isn't about there needs to be necessarily a new policy. What needs to happen is the policies that are on the books that are in black and white, when they're not followed, there have to be consequences because when they're not, when there are no consequences, then what it says is that you're able to violate them and get away with it. Is this lawsuit at the department and hold the officers, DA bought. Who are you all citing here? Who are the defend? Will be the defendants? Can you tell me? Right now, what we do know is that the officers involved, and we do believe the county, um, their approach to people with mental health issues, um, that that would warrant. And it's very rare that we bring in jurisdictions. This is extremely rare that we bring in jurisdictions because normally it's the individual officer. But here we think that we'll be able to show that there has been a pattern of how um, those with mental health issues have been dealt with in DeKalb County. And because of it, we believe that the county uh, themselves should be uh, held liable as well and not just the officers. It's been well over a year. Miss Lewis, you told me last time you were here, you said you want your son back. You said this shouldn't have happened. How do you proceed now? How do you go on now and still doing the work that you want to do, but at the same time you're still carrying, obviously, the grief, the loss of your son? You told me last time you, you all want to make sure this doesn't happen again. So how do you all do that? How do you, how do you proceed now? Well... I heard you ask my attorney about the civil case. The civil case would bring out the truth. I really didn't care anything about that. Mm -hmm. I, what I really wanted was criminal charges. But all Sherry Boston left us with is a civil case. But through that, at least the truth will come out. Because remember, on April 12th, on all across local news, they were calling my son homeless and knife-welding. Mm -hmm. They still haven't come out and corrected that with their own words. So I want the truth out there. And then what I want to see is, because it's obvious that they're not willing to hold their own accountable, I would like to see there be some type of special prosecutors assigned outside of this total entity where all police killings will be reported to. That would give the the citizens, the confidence to know that this will be handled fairly. Because mm -hmm. it's really unfair to Sherry Boston to have to make this decision. She has too close of a relationship. She works with them. Mm -hmm. She should not be put in a position in the first place to make this decision. Hannah and Zephora, I'll give you all the last word. Hannah. 
I want to speak to CEO Mike Thurman, um, also Chief Martha Ramos. The criminal investigation has been closed, but we are still counting on them as DeKalb leadership to also hold these officers responsible. They are still working. There were several policy violations that day, and we really would like to see some action in their office. Um, as a family, what we're going to do is continue to fight and advocate for mental health policies and continue to be a voice for my brother. My brother's voice was void in this entire investigation, and I think it's important that you know his side is heard and his story is told through us because it'll be able to help so many other people. This is re-traumatizing. It's very triggering. When we got the news, it felt like he had died all over again. However, you know, we have to get ourselves grounded, you know, get focused and continue to fight. Zadok was like Christmas. Yeah. He was like Christmas. He was like holidays. He was a vacation himself. Mm -hmm. He walked into a room and it just changed. He was the best person I've ever known and probably will ever know. And um, this loss has been tremendous. And the pain will never go away. My mother is in pain every day. And we're just gonna have to learn to live with it. But um, thank you for having us on the show to talk about our brother. Hannah Williams, sister Zephora Williams, mother Chris Ann Lewis, attorney Malali Davis, thank you all for coming in and taking the time. And we should note to our listeners, we did go over our allotted time, but we wanted to be fair in terms of actual time that we gave to District Attorney Sherry Boston. Thank you all again for coming in. Thank you Thank so you. much, Rose. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.